Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty, as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present our conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of the third week of witness testimony in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. And now, Jury Duty continues its coverage of Danny Masterson's retrial with another in our series of conversations between Jury Duty creator Carrie Antholis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. On today's episode, we present a conversation between Carrie and Tony about week three of witness testimonies in the Masterson retrial. And here is that chat. Tony Ortega, thank you again for joining us. You bet, Karen. Glad to be here. When last we spoke, we were discussing Philip Cohen's cross-examination of Jane Doe number 2 at the end of the day on Thursday, with Cohen going after what he characterized as her paranoia about Scientology. And then Jane Doe 2 had to wait four full days until this past Tuesday for Cohen to resume his cross-examination of her. And again, her testimony about Danny Masterson's allegedly raping her was particularly brutal. Could you give us a recap of the most significant parts of Cohen's cross beginning on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, on Tuesday, what he's really focused on are the post-incident contacts. And that's the same thing he really focused on with her in the first trial. We had already heard from an expert who said that this is not unusual. When a woman is attacked by a man she knows, or even a man she's in a relationship with, she's going to react in different ways than a woman who's attacked by a stranger. And the expert had already prepared the jury that they may, you know, continue to have contact with that person. Well, Jane Doe, too, had testified to this really brutal treatment on that night in 2003. But what Cohen was focused on was that after this, you know, encounter was finished, she stayed. She was staying at his house until six in the morning talking with him. Uh, there was even more sexual contact. And so he was asking about her. And of course, she knew this was coming because it was a big part of her cross-examination the first time. And 
the way she answered that was by saying she was trying to manage things. She was at one point worried that he might harm her in some way or that it might escalate in some way. And she was trying to manage the situation. And also that she was trying to reframe it in her mind because she didn't want to think of it as it was. And she knew as a Scientologist, she was not going to be able to turn in Danny Masson or complain about him, that he was this opinion leader. And so the way she characterized it was if they could de-escalate things and go back to just talking, maybe that would make him okay in her mind. And so, you know, Cohen is doing his best to come at her about that in a way that, you know, makes it sound like, you know, it's just nonsense. And of course, I thought she did a very good job helping people understand what has to be just a crazy alien situation for anybody. So I thought she held up really well under that. Another thing she was kind of prepared for, he wants it to seem more like she just had too much to drink that night and there's nothing suspicious about what had happened. And of course, the DA and Jane Doe too are characterizing it as no, she had one drink and then was like losing her vision. I mean, it was just, you know, the clear implication that there must have been something in that drink. But at one point, you know, for example, one very uh, characteristic thing about her depiction of that night is that he was attacking her so brutally, she threw up in her mouth and then describes swallowing it because she didn't want to spoil his sheets. I mean, just the visceral, vivid uh, description of Jane Doe 2 is, is just amazing. And, and really, she really tries to put you there. He then asked her on that uh, Tuesday in cross-examination, yeah, but didn't that happen to you often? Haven't you told friends that you throw up very easily? And she, I got the feeling she was ready for this because she said, oh, that I throw up in my mouth when I'm being raped? Uh, I can't say that that happens too often. You know, I mean, I, that's not verbatim, but that's the implication that she said. There were a number of zingers like that where each of these women were kind of waiting for Cohen to ask them questions that they felt were really kind of offensive and, and really kind of gave it to him. So that's uh, some sense of the flavor of how things went on Tuesday. And didn't Cohen ask her why she spent the rest of the night after the alleged sexual assault up all night talking to Danny Masterson? Right. And like I said, she characterized it as a way of managing the situation and reframing it in her mind. That if she could de-escalate things and turn it back into a normal night, it would help her deal with what she had been through. Also, this time, she used the term surviving a lot. And she didn't do that the first trial that I remember. This time, every time Cohen would ask her something like that, like, why did you uh, stay the whole night? Why did you call him up several days later? Why did you, you know, she would just say, that's, that's what I needed to do to survive this because I could not think of it as it really was. And that was her answer. The next witness was Jane Doe 2's friend named Rachel. Can you tell us the significance of her testimony? Yeah, I thought it was really much more significant this time than the first time. Rachel S., her friend, was the last witness we heard from on either side in the first trial. And it kind of felt tacked on. It kind of felt like, why are we hearing from this? We've already heard some other corroborating witnesses. They made such better use of her this time. They moved her up in the order. Also, Carrie, we hadn't really heard much about Scientology for a couple of days in a trial that's just got so much interesting Scientology component. That had kind of gone away for a few days. 
movies. And then Rachel S. brought it back in a really big way. Because when Jane Doe 2 approached her and told her about the incident, they were both in Scientology and Rachel S. was particularly hardcore about it. And she described the mindset, how difficult it was to hear from her best friend at the time, Jane Doe 2, that she had been attacked. Because in Scientology, if you're victimized, it's your fault and you could be punished for it. And Rachel didn't want to think of her friend that way. She was describing that. But also, and I, I think this was the first time we heard this in this trial. It was really interesting. She was talking about how she knew Danny Madison. She looked up to him. They thought of him as this revered sort of, you know, upstat, high-producing celebrity for the church. She really did not want to hear negative information about him because you can, you yourself can be hauled in for an interrogation that's expensive and be punished merely because you've heard this stuff. And she knew that. And she was talking about how painful for her that it was that her friend was talking about being victimized and that she was hearing negative things about Danny. I, I don't know. I just thought this was one of the most fascinating things that really brought home the upside down, crazy nature of Scientology indoctrination. And for that reason, I felt Rachel S. was so much more significant and effective this time than in the first trial. And in fact, I think you reported that Philip Cohen objected to her testimony about those concerns about Scientology. You know, he's been he's been objecting to Scientology content. And so I don't know if it was just sort of pro forma and he's just against it in general. But I think he probably recognized that this was really effective. But this, I mean, the judges ruled that she's going to allow things like that in to help explain the, the frame of mind that these victims were in. Well, and in this case, it wasn't the victim's frame of mind, but the witness's frame of mind, correct? Right. And and also that that went to show why they didn't go to the police, why they weren't also uh, trying to help the Jane Doe's do that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We resume the conversation between Carrie Antholis and Tony Ortega with Carrie's question to Tony about the final witness to take the stand on Tuesday, May 9th. The final witness on Tuesday was another of Jane Doe 2's friends, Jordan Ladd, who was never a member of the Church of Scientology, as I understand it. Could you tell us about her testimony and its significance? Sure. Jordan Ladd, she's an actress, and they had met on a movie set, and they had become very, very close friends. Jordan Ladd testified that I think she'd taken a couple of courses in Scientology in the 90s, but she'd never considered herself a member. So that's that's important. And, she, you know, she was one of the first people, it was either her or Jane Doe 2's mother that she told like that week or something after the incident. And so, you know, this is a corroborating witness years before Jane Doe 2 learned about the other women, years before going to the police, who heard about some details that we've heard from other people. And that was the jackhammer comment, the the fact that she had told him she didn't want to have sex and he, and he ignored her and raped her anyway, and that she'd thrown up in her mouth. So those details from this witness suggests that, again, it goes towards the idea that these women have never changed their stories. They've been telling this 
the same way for 20 years. And I thought it was interesting. I think in the first trial, she talked about this, that they were best friends at the time, but then there were years when they didn't, they weren't talking to each other. So, you know, this was something that, that she remembered very clearly from that time. And it helped establish that Jane Doe 2 story was consistent from the beginning. That's the importance, I think, for using a witness like that. You remarked at the end of the day on Tuesday that the prosecution was ripping through its case. How does the pace of the prosecution's examination of witnesses in this trial compare to the first trial? I got the impression that they learned a lot from the first trial about what was useful and what was superfluous. And so it just seemed like they were being a lot more efficient with all of their witnesses. And it was that Tuesday that I really noticed how quickly they were starting to go get people on and off. I mean, obviously with the main complaining witnesses, Jane Doe 1, 2, and 3, it's going to be multiple days to get through their testimony, their cross-examinations. But now at this point, when they started bringing on three witnesses in one day and the next day they had five, that's when you realize, wow, they know exactly what they're going to ask. They don't waste time. Judge Olmedo also really limits things like redirect and recross. And I just, I sort of pick my head up and realize, hey, we're near the end. We're near the goal line already. I I think that was the day when I realized that uh, things were going to wrap up a lot quicker than they did in the first trial. Wednesday's proceedings started with a bombshell from the DA's office. Tell us what happened in court that morning. That was a, such a strange morning. I know that the judge had said a number of people had things they wanted to put on the record. And DA Mueller really shocked us. He said that just last night, we learned some really surprising things that Vicki Pobreski, the attorney who works for the Church of Scientology, had met with the chief of the LAPD, uh, Chief Moore, and the what he was describing that Scientology was doing, they had met with the LAPD and they'd sent an email to the DA's office, basically the bosses of these deputy DAs trying this case. And Scientology was complaining because they believed that the detective handling this investigation was testifying and sort of confirming that there has been harassment of these women by Scientology. That's the subject of the parallel civil lawsuit. Judge Almeida is allowing some testimony about that in the criminal case, but it's really the focus of the civil case that these women believe since they came forward in 2016, they've been subject to an ongoing harassment campaign by Scientology. Scientology is very unhappy that that allegation is being made in court. And apparently Vicky Pabreski had gone to the chief of the LAPD asking him to open internal affairs investigations on these detectives to look into the idea that they're basically defaming Scientology. I mean, it just sounded bizarre. And then the judge was kind of like, okay, but what's this got to do with us? Well, then Deputy D.A. Mueller really loved the second, you know, I mean, it was just incredible what he said. In the email that Vicky Popereski sent to the DA's office, there was a link that led to a share file with 12 folders of material that the DA realized was the redacted discovery, the police reports, emails, text messages, photographs that the DA's office had turned over to the defense at some point, which is what you do. And of course, like you've got to share your evidence with the other side. How in the heck did that information given to the defense end up in the hands of the Church of Scientology? And let me tell you, Carrie, I've been around these DAs for a couple of years now. They're very, you know, by the book. They don't show much emotion. Their their language is very, you know, traditional. I could tell they were livid. I mean, they're shocked. They're stunned. They're angry that the material, the very sensitive material they shared with the defense 
has ended up in the hands of the Church of Scientology. So uh, Judge Olmedo looked at defense attorney Philip Cohen and said, are you sharing information with Scientology? And he said, no. And she asked him, then how do they have it? And he said, I uh, I have no idea. So at that point on Wednesday morning, you could tell Judge Olmedo was also really stunned. She initially talked about an order to show cause, but then they were, a little bit later, they were talking about an evidentiary hearing post-trial. She wants to, you know, she doesn't want anything to slow down what's happening with determining Danny Madison's guilt or innocence. This is clearly a separate issue. But, you know, she was talking about a post-trial evidentiary hearing. By Friday, she was talking about having a hearing once the jury has the case. Well, Carrie, that's Tuesday afternoon. So maybe this evidentiary hearing is coming pretty soon. She's asked the DA if they're going to refer this to law enforcement. DA Mueller said yes. She's asked them if they're going to be referring to the California bar. And he was noncommittal about that. And then he asked, she asked them if he, they're going to be subpoenaing Masters and Zerdes. You know, on Friday, Sean, Hawley tried to minimize it a bit, tried to lower the heat and say, well, you know, uh, there was no protective order here. And maybe it got shared because of a private, you know, the civil suit. The DA was having none of it. And neither was the judge. The DA was talking about how extremely troubling this is, that their material ended up with Scientology. And that the judge was basically gave Hawley a lecture about how the rules for criminal discovery are much different than they are for civil cases. You might not be familiar with that, she said to Hawley. And Carrie, I don't know what sort of penalties might be involved here or if anybody's going to be penalized or not. I just know the judge and the DA want to get to the bottom of how this sensitive material, private information about these victims that they had to share with the defense also somehow ended up in the hands of the Church of Scientology. You have a theory about where that material came from. Would you feel comfortable sharing it with us? Sure, because I think Hawley really telegraphed it on Friday. Before Philip Cohen and Sean Hawley took over this case, Masterson's lead defense attorney was Tom Mesereau. And the, the well-known, famous Tom Mesereau handled the Michael Jackson case and the Robert Blake case and all that. And my reporting in 21, 2021 was there were some shocking things that happened at the preliminary hearing and some other things, some a subpoena he gave me and some other people that really suggested David Miscavige, the leader of the Church of Scientology, was calling the shots, that Tom Mesereau was getting direction from the Church of Scientology. Now we find out the redacted discovery material given to the defense by the DA has been given to Scientology. And Sean Hawley on Friday talked about a previous counsel turning this over in a civil proceeding. She, she almost, she all but named Mesra. So I'm sure they're going to come up with a way to minimize it and say, well, we thought this was okay or whatever. Based on what Holly said, it sure sounded like even they're talking about Mesro. What Does that mean Mesro is going to get hauled into court on a subpoena to talk about this? I don't know. But all I know, Carrie, is I'm going to be sitting in the front row. Well, the back row, but whatever. I'll be there. The rest of Wednesday and the early part of Thursday was made up of testimony from LAPD officer Schlegel and Detective Reyes, whose name is now Miape. Can you tell us the significant aspects of their testimonies and how they compared to their testimonies in the first trial? Detective Schlegel, he was Officer Schlegel at the time when he took the uh, police report. His testimony was largely the same as it was in the first trial. Uh, the prosecution is sort of raising some questions about his report taking at the time and whether he might have left some things out in particular something about a gun and then the defense acts a little outraged and on his behalf and suggests he's the best report writer in history and I, you know I, I think that Detective Schlegel 
his testimony definitely raises some questions about the Jane Doe 1 case. Uh, but that was much, much overshadowed by what happened with Detective Reyes. To me, I know the discovery leak is going to be the big press story coming out of this past week. But to me, the biggest story of this past week was what Detective Reyes said. When I first broke the news of this investigation on March 3rd, 2017, my very first story was about how these women were really unhappy with how the LAPD was handling this, and specifically Detective Esther Reyes. They didn't like the way she was talking to them. She didn't like the way she they claimed she was putting words in their mouths in interviews. She wasn't calling their witnesses. Just a lot of complaints. And their complaining worked. The, the LAPD replaced Reyes only a few months after this investigation began and gave it to a detective, Javier Vargas, who then is still the lead detective today. In the first trial, there was some limited criticism of Detective Reyes. They kind of danced around it a little bit. Uh, there was some back and forth about, you know, what to say about detectives changing. Let me tell you, in this trial, it's been just so much criticism of her out in the open. These women have been asked about it. They've, they've criticized her openly. The DA has criticized her. So now they bring her in, okay? And you have to understand, the defense has made a really big deal about Detective Reyes, saying that Reyes told these three women, do not talk to each other or you will contaminate this case. But the women went ahead and talked to each other. I have to tell you, Carrie, this is probably the biggest pillar the whole defense has been built on in the first trial and this trial, is that you can't believe these women because they defied Detective Reyes and contaminated the case by talking to each other. So when these women were asked about this, this time they were explaining that they were so upset by how Reyes was handling the case, they had to talk to each other to compare notes to find out what they were going to do about it. Now, they say that they did not, when they did talk to each other, they weren't talking about their allegations. They weren't talking about what they thought about Danny Madison. They were just talking about these problems with Reyes. Okay, so now they bring Reyes in. And for the first time, Carrie, somebody actually asked her, the DA said, do you think that these women have contaminated the case? The thing that you warned them about. And she said, no. She said, no, I don't think these women have contaminated this case. Oh my goodness. I mean, I was absolutely stunned because this, I mean, this woman has been beat up. They have said so many bad things about her. And yet here she came in and stood up for these women and said, no, they did not contaminate this case. I was stunned. I just really, I got a lot of admiration for that woman that she, that Detective Reyes, Detective Maya Bay now could say that. And you could tell, I mean, this was a disaster for Cohen. He then on cross went after her numerous different ways to try to now, you know, now his star witness is gone. So now he's going to tear her down, right? Okay, well, you you were only lead detective from December 2016 to March 2017. You weren't involved in the case in 2018, 2019. How do you know it was it wasn't contaminated, right? So he goes from using her as the pillar of his defense. Now he's spending the cross examination trying to destroy her. Wow. To me, I mean, this is the thing that you would you would put on law and order, right? The star witness turning on the defense. I thought it was huge. The last witness on Thursday was Kathleen Jay. Can you tell us about her testimony? Sure. So Kathleen Jay lives in Toronto. She's involved in the film industry. And in October 2021, she tweeted that she was also a victim of Danny Masterson. And that was brought to my attention. So I called her up. I, I found her number. I called her up, interviewed her. She sent me a picture of herself from the year 2000, which is when this alleged incident occurred. And I put out a story. Now, almost two years later, she was brought in to testify. <clears throat> and since then, she had given an interview to the Toronto PD, and she talked about on the stand, she testified to 
that she's been working with a memory expert and it's helped her remember some things. So what she said on the stand was different than what is in my article from two years ago. So defense attorney Philip Cohen then subpoenaed me trying to get me up on the stand to talk about my article so he could, you know, exploit this. And I got to take Carrie, first of all, I'm a reporter. I don't want to be in the case, but also I just don't want to be in a position where I, you know, have to, you know, contradict or criticize a rape victim. I'm not going to do that. And so my attorney, uh, we put together a, a letter overnight and Friday morning brought it to the judge and the judge acknowledged that you can't just call a reporter in on a subpoena in California. You at least have to give him five days and have a hearing. And nobody wants to to hold up this trial for five days. And she convinced the two parties simply to do a stipulation about my article from 2021. But Kathleen Jay had testified that she was working as a prop master on a film called Angel Eyes in Toronto starring Jennifer Lopez. She had gone to a, a rap party at a hotel in Toronto and there happened to be a cast party from another film there that night, uh, Dracula 2000, uh, which starred Gerard Butler and Danny Masterson was in it. And her allegations are that Masterson drugged her and raped her. And he, he is not facing charges based on her allegations. She has been brought in as what's called a past bad acts witness. In the first trial, it was an actress named Trisha Vesey who was brought in as a fourth uh, accuser, the past bad acts witness. She alleged that Danny had raped her at a rap party in 1996. So now this is the fifth accuser they've brought in. This time it's, she's the fourth, uh, in, you know, the, the three main Jane Doe's and then Kathleen Jay is the fourth in this trial. Trisha Vesey, who testified in the first trial, chose not to this time. You know, they're trying to show a pattern. They're trying to show that at the same time he was still in a relationship with Jane Doe 3 in the year 2000, he was in Toronto attacking this woman, Kathleen Jay. And so that's to give the jury this idea that the guy had a pattern. You know, it involved drinks, it involved drugging, and it involved raping. So that's why she was there to testify. You also reported that Danny Masterson got angry about something during Friday's session. What was that about? The husband of Jane Doe 1 came in with Jane Doe 1's Marcy's Law attorney. The Marcy's Law attorney was there to uh, read a statement about how outraged they were over the discovery leak, that this was a clear violation of Marcy's Law, which is there to protect these victims. We've had testimony about Church of Scientology harassing these women, and now, you know, the fact that they've got their private emails is just a horrible breach. And so the, the Marcy's Law attorney was there to, to read a statement, and then her husband went with him, and the husband was sitting in the front row the DA's row, and Danny got upset that this man was staring at him. Carrie, I, my face was in my laptop. I missed it. Somebody I know that was sitting just a row in front of me told me they saw Danny got really upset and said, what are you looking at? And got the bailiff. The judge did address it and told the man, I'm not going to exclude you, but you know, you need to look around other parts of the courtroom and not just at Danny and she admonished all of us once again use poker faces and then the man got up and left and the judge then said to the Marcy's law attorney I just want to make it clear I did not exclude him he can stay if he wants and the Marcy's law said no that's fine so full trial last time almost all the testimony done this time and this was the first time we've seen Danny Madison really get upset and it was because this man was just apparently really glaring at him from the front row and that was it there were no other witnesses for the prosecution and none for the defense were there any witnesses that you were expecting to be called and were surprised that they were not called? The prosecution, I 
thought was going to call Kathleen Jay's ex-husband as a corroborating witness, and they chose not to. I don't think that's a big deal. The defense had talked about calling Detective Vargas, the current lead investigator in the case, because the prosecution chose not to. I thought that might happen, but they changed their mind. Keep in mind, last, the first trial, the defense called no witnesses. So it's not too surprising. They had a small witness list. They were going to enlist three experts of their own, Danny's assistant, and they had their own Scientology expert. I think we talked about this before, Carrie, that they listed the stepfather of the woman who was the prosecution's Scientology expert. That turned out to be just the cute stunt that we thought it was. They didn't call him. I did think they might call the Kathleen Jax husband and the defense call Vargas, but neither one was. So it was a little shorter than I was expecting. And suddenly it's all done. And now we move on to jury instructions and then uh, they're taking Monday off and then Tuesday we'll have closing arguments and the jury should have it Tuesday afternoon. Just one last question, Tony. As in the first trial, Danny Masterson chose not to testify in his own defense and that is his right and the jury cannot hold that against him. But do you think there was ever a chance that he would testify in this trial or in the first trial? You know, the first trial, I was hearing from some people that knew him. They felt that he might think from his sort of Scientology training that he could. They have this thing in Scientology they call Tone 40, where you speak in a real sort of uh, powerful voice to influence other people. And they were saying, I think he's going to get up there and try to Tone 40 the jury and, you know, impress them and stuff. But it's generally a really bad idea for a defendant to take the stand in a case like this. I think that especially since you know, they got a hung jury the first time. I thought there was even less chance this time that he would testify. I think, you know, somebody like that is only going to testify if they think things have gone really badly and they're kind of desperate. And I think the defense feels the same way this time that they do last time, that they're bringing up things about these women that may cause, you know, some doubt. And, you know, they don't need to call their own witnesses. They've just cross-examined every prosecution witness and they feel that that's going to do the trick. So I, I really wasn't surprised when he said he was not going to testify. Actually, that brings to mind one last question, and I promise this is the last. <laughs> it's okay. What was the split in the jury's verdict last time? Right. So um, there's three women, three charges. I know it's complicated, but they're they're charging under this California one strike law, which requires multiple convictions to, for him to face this potential life sentence. So multiple means two. The prosecution needs at least two guilty verdicts out of the three. And in the first trial, the split on Jane Doe one was two guilty 10 acquittal. Jane Doe 2 was 4 guilty, 8 acquittal. And Jane Doe 3 was 5 guilty, 7 acquittal. So all three were leaning towards acquittal with slightly differences between them. I think the prosecution has done a much better job this time. My main complaint the first time was that they didn't really put together a narrative very well. They really worked on that this time. They really told a story and it has a lot of Scientology elements to it. It's got some much more overt drugging allegations. They stayed away from that in the first trial. It just really feels like the, the prosecution was more efficient, more powerful this time. But, you know, the defense is still working on those, you know, things that they feel are inconsistencies and problems of credibility. Yeah, and we'll see. It's, it's really hard to predict with a jury like this. Tony Ortega, thank you once again for joining us and remind our listeners where they can find you. Right. So please sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com. You'll get my 
reports from the court as soon as I send them out. And this is going to be a real interesting week. We, you want to keep on the verdict watch with me. So hope I'll see you there. Thanks again, Tony. Thank you, Carrie. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, the retrial of Danny Masterson. Please join our next installment for the next conversation between Tony Ortega and Carrie Antholis about the Masterson retrial. And, starting later this month, look for Season 8 of Jury Duty covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.